Hello and welcome to Movies and Tea Season 5 and if you haven't guessed already from the episode description this is going to be our David Finch season. I'm your host as always Edward Jones and joining me of course is my co-host and fellow tea drinker Miss Kim Lowe. Hello. And uh, tonight we're also joined by a very special guest Miss Heather Baxendale. Hello and thank you for having me on. Well thank you for uh, obviously joining us Heather and uh, obviously as we said already, we're going to be talking about David Fincher, which in these sort of crazy times perhaps wasn't the best director to go with. Uh, perhaps we should have gone with someone lighter, but uh, so be it. I mean, Fincher, as we all probably know, is a director who likes to make movies that scar, as he says in his own <laughs> words. He's one of the wonderkin directors who started off making music videos and um, commercials and managed to actually transgress into making feature films and there's only a small number of directors who managed to do this. Obviously we look and look at Spike Jones, Michelle Gondry other people uh, have n not really sort of been so lucky to sort of get the sort of fame grasp hold when we look at films such as like One Hour Photo and Beth who's a director is still obviously out there making great music videos, but just have not been able to make feature films the way that Fincher has really sort of established himself as a main name for. So just obviously establishing where we all sort of stand with Fincher's work. I mean, it's safe to say we're all sort of fans of his work. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. He's he's my favorite director of, of all time. Uh, so you could say that I, I like him a little. <laughs> <laughs> My first experience with him film was actually Alien 3, but I was unaware that I was experiencing a David Fincher film at the time. I was only 11. Uh, the first film that I knew was a David Fincher film that I watched was Seven. And I was probably only 13 or 14 at the time, so you could say that scene at the end still sticks with me. I still don't think it's funny when people joke about boxes. Kim, what about yourself? Where was your sort of history with Fincher? Mine would probably be seven also. Um, it had like a scarring effect. <laughs> I was thinking about it yesterday and I was like, that whole box thing? Like, I haven't seen that movie since like when it came out in 95 and I was like, I don't know, nine or something like that. And it was like, I still remember like so many scenes of it right now. And it's crazy because... I have, like, a crap memory. Like, I always talk about it. I have a crap memory, but it's one of those moments where you always remember. Um, but obviously, you know, back then, I don't know about directors, and I don't know about those things as much. So, you know, now that you think about, think back to it, it's, it's kind of like this really great, I guess, great memory in a scarring it, way. It is. <laughs> I well, know. I mean, it's. It, I think I had a similar experience as in, I, I knew who James Cameron was and Spielberg at the time, and I knew a handful of the, the big guys, but this was the first time where I'm like, I want to see everything this guy does. It was the first time I had a physical reaction to a movie. I was swallowing chunks, trying not to throw up at the end. And and still, even when I think about it, and I can I can almost relive it again. And you don't have that experience very often with films, and it says a lot about him. Just amazing. Yeah, definitely. I think Fincher's films have always had a certain rewatchability, which other directors have never really failed to have and certainly when you look at films such as like seven and fight club the fact that you can constantly go back to them time and time again and they still hold that original that same power that they have of the initial viewing if not improved upon because fincher is a director who really sort of crams in so many details he's got an obsession to 
perfection and visuals that sort of matches the likes of Kubrick and Cameron, uh, who you mentioned already. And at the same time, you see him in a do, as he openly admits, I'll do seven takes and then we'll start shooting. He is one of those directors who knows exactly what he wants to what he wants to have for his films to do, the shots he wants to see, and we see it time and time again with the trademarks that he carries across. Uh, the use of, like, the impossible shots, like we see in, like, for example, Fight Club, where we see the apartment, how the apartment explodes, where we have the zoom in on the gas cooker. We see it in Social Network, where we've got the long panning shot where it goes through a window. Um, the use of colour... So we often have the darkly lit rooms and those small bits of uh, light bit, like the piercing flashlights, and his obsession with the colour yellow. And it's really when you sit down and start looking at these films a lot deeper that you realise all the subtle little nuances that he has. Like when we look at Gongo and we got Ben Affleck doing his statement for the appeal for where Amy is and we've got her parents are dressed in brown and very muted colours and here he is in like the light blue shirt he's sort of like standing out and he's been intentionally identified as being separate from the rest of the group and it's what I love about Fincher's work is the fact that he just constantly manages to bring something new to the table he's not just like uh like M. Night Shahan where he's just like is this one trick pony he's constantly reinventing and adapting with the times and he's one of the few directors as well who's made digital filmmaking work for himself whereas other directors have tried to move from film to digital and it's always sort of been kind of jarring when we look at like Michael Mann's films but he's always really just been able to constantly adapt with the times much like Cameron again who I think is going to be one of those directors we're going to constantly draw comparisons to because the two are so alike in many ways I think especially in their sort of drivenness to perfection, especially. Absolutely. Well, and I, I think part of the, what's interesting, too, is he still does dodge all over the place. He still will direct uh, some TV episodes. He will make music videos still. And there is no linear connection between all of his films other than they look like Fincher. Like you said, you get those yellows. You get. I think if you watch from beginning to end, too, Zodiac is... It's just beautiful to look at everything. There's very few movies where you can just absorb yourself in the stillness. And that's that's what I think he captures better than anybody else. Yeah, and I mean, I really like, you know, I think the thing that draws me the most to Fincher is really, you know, he's able, because he has such an eye of what he really wants to create, he already, like, he can pick up these really kind of complex kind of stories and be able to really work in those twists and those reveals really effectively and execute everything um, to be like, you know, just build that atmosphere and, and that tension really well. When it comes to the Fincher filmography, though, do we have sort of like a standout favorite in his filmography? Or do you sort of have like three or four films that you just find yourself constantly returning to? Have I it? constantly return to several of them. Gone Girl is probably my first or second favorite movie of this decade. I, I can't stop watching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I went and read the book afterwards, too, and I sometimes, after that happens, I tend to get more wrapped up in the, the book, and I visit the movie less often. And this one, it was actually the opposite. I got more into the movie after that and became sort of obsessed with it. I love it. Hmm. Uh, Zodiac's another one that I, I didn't start rewatching on purpose. I have an interest in serial killers anyway I have since I was younger, and Zodiac was one of the ones that I was always fascinated with. And the first time I watched the movie, I was like, that was great. But it didn't have the same impact on me. Rewatching, though, 
it gets better every single time. Fight Club, Seven, and and you can say that about almost any of his films. Almost any of them. I the only one I think that didn't really connect to me was Benjamin Button. That that one didn't have the same impact as as the rest of them. I enjoyed it, but that was one that stands out as less Fincher asked me. But you could pick out just about any of the rest of them, and I, even Panic Room, and I'll sit down and go, "Yep, I'm watching this from beginning to end now. It's on, hmm. not leaving." Yeah, Benjamin Button's one of my blind spots for this season. I'm really curious to know how it's going to end, especially. So uh, that's going to be <laughs> <laughs> just going to leave that one out there. Um, Kim, what about yourself? If you talk about like actually rewatching a lot, I think Alien Three definitely because. I think this rewatch for this show, the recording now kind of made kind of like made it more than any of the other ones I've rewatched. Um, but I mean, like I like Panic Room a lot. Um, I have a few that I don't remember a lot, but I really like Gone Girl. Um, I did the opposite of Heather actually. I'm a big <laughs> fan of the the, the author herself. Um, and Gone Girl, out of like her three books that she's written, all of them are really great books. Gone Girl is actually one that's executed the best and it was the one that I was like right away I was like okay Nick has to be Ben Affleck and the director <laughs> has to be David Fincher <laughs> and I was so happy that those two things kind of came into play well that's interesting that you say that too because it feels like they worked on it together there's a flawlessness between the way she told the story and the reflection of that in Fincher's vision too there were still two completely unique perspectives of the story but at the same time they both are absolutely parallel and i thought that was fantastic excellent book though you should read the book if you like the movie read the book too i did i like how he's able to take works of fiction though and still adapt it into being a fincher work and certainly when we're looking at again look at the trademarks in like the faces of evil and we look consider the character of amy i mean obviously not to spoil it too much if you've not seen gongo yet which i just urge and everybody does that reveal in particular is i think probably one of finch's best shocking reveals of all his films um it's right up there with the end of seven and perhaps just above uh the big twist big reveal of who Ted, tyler Durden is in fight club so i think when i was rewatching there because i watched gone go by myself originally and then i showed it to my wife and i was just like waiting for that point where the story <laughs> flips and i was just wait watching her waiting for a reaction and the cry of that bitch just made it all <laughs> worthwhile <laughs> oh yeah it's great it's absolutely fantastic mm. well and, and even ones that you anticipate are coming in zodiac you know that the, it's still an unsolved case but you're still waiting, and you know that that scene at the end has to be coming where he talks to the guy who everyone believes is the Zodiac. And and it doesn't diminish the buildup or, or the reveal of him in that conversation at the end, which is, ugh, I get freaking goosebumps just thinking about. For myself, I think the one that I return to the most would be Fight Club. I'm a huge Chuck Planet fan. He influenced myself so much as a writer, along with the likes of Hunter S. Thompson, Catherine Dunn, Brett Easton Ellis until he started his own podcast and there's fight, something about Fight Club I just constantly return to and I think it's because it, when it came out in 1999, the greatest movie year ever and I was in that sort of transitional year, I was leaving school going into college and it really sort of appeals to that sort of wilderness generation and again it ties in perfectly with Social Outcasts and the only film 
for myself that sort of rivals it would be social network uh which when we did our sort of countdown of of the last decade was the film i said was my favorite film of the last decade and i'm putting this above the likes of mad max fury road there's just something about social network that it should not have been as good as that film was it's a movie no. about facebook <laughs> <laughs> It's a TV movie, and it's somehow elevated to greater things because Finch is the one behind the lens. So that's that's the thing that's magnificent about him, though. Like you said, there's a there's a certain stillness, and just I I just don't know how he does it. It's amazing. Uh, well, until obviously our first film of this season, we're going to be talking about Alien Free, the much maligned uh, sequel to both Ridley Scott's original Alien, The Haunted House in Space, uh, followed up by James Cameron's Aliens, the cult favourite, and which essentially transposed the Vietnam War again into space. And here with Alien 3, Fincher returned with a much darker vision, which not only killed off everyone's favourite characters, leaving us with a broken and isolated Ripley, now alone on an all-male penal colony, but also facing a new breed of Alien as well. This is a film which did not play well with critics and audiences alike. Many of fans for years cited it as being the worst film of the series. And for myself, I actually cited it as being one of my favourites of the series and a film that I've not only watched numerous times in the past, but I've also subjected Kim to about three pages of fanboy rantings about this movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> And th that was just on the location and production. Never mind, like... The probably what this is going to descend into now, so I'm just going to warn in advance and maybe some frenzied fanboy rantings for myself. So, <laughs> but um, opening thoughts on this one I mean, obviously, Alien 3, it's the third film in a series, and in many ways, it feels like the middle film of a trilogy. Because if we look at the traditional trilogy structure, we have the first film where you introduce your characters, your second film where you put them in the worst situation possible. Uh, which certainly would seem to be the case here with Alien 3. And then we have the big finale where we come out of Guns Blazing, which essentially would be Aliens. But here, obviously, rather than trying to go bigger or better, Fincher essentially strips the film back, really puts us in a very unique situation as we're now on a penal colony. There's no guns, there's no weapons, and everything just is broken. And as uh, Moore says, all we've got essentially is shit. So... <laughs> Um, opening thoughts on this film, um, Heather, I mean, what did you obviously think coming into Alien 3 as a fan of the series? First of all, this actual franchise started with Aliens for me. I hadn't seen Alien first. Yeah. I really liked scary movies when I was little, and it was bothering my mother, so she thought if I watched Aliens, I'd be scared so badly that I wouldn't want to watch scary movies anymore, and it had the exact opposite effects on me. It was my favorite film as a kid. <laughs> that and Labyrinth probably tied. <laughs> uh, and because of it, I became obsessed at a very young age with it and Sigourney Weaver. She was my hero. She still is my hero as Ripley. So I was probably, I think, 10 or 11 when uh, when Alien 3 came to the theater. And it, was, it had to have been R. And... Uh, my parents gave me the, all right, we're going to go see it. You can go see it. Yeah, you've seen the other ones a million times. It can't be that bad. So I, I thought I was going to have more aliens than I was young. And I didn't. I got this movie, and I hated it. I hated it, and I, I absolutely loathed every second of it. I don't think I watched it for another seven or eight years. It was, it was at least while I was in college. So it had 
been quite some time. And then I watched and I was like, wait a minute, why did I hate this so much? This is kind of awesome. And I, and I had been a Fincher fan at that point too. So I, I gave it more of a chance after that. I think I watched it a few more times. And then I, again, went like another decade without watching it and feeling completely just numb about it. I didn't hate it, dislike it, nothing. And I watched it again in the last couple of years. So all of my kids could watch it and my husband could see the entire series. I made them sit through Resurrection as well. And they did not like it, but I loved it this time. Uh, I, I saw exactly what was intended and how I think it was supposed to be appreciated. I was one of the people that wanted more of Cameron's or Ridley Scott's and didn't appreciate the direction that it had taken. And I think it took a little bit of time and affection for the franchise itself and the character of Ripley to really, and you know, some maturity too, to understand exactly what was intended. The CGI is the one thing that drops the ball for me. It should have been more practical effects. It distracts from the great story and some of the tension that's building. It, it really ruins some of the scarier moments still for me, but the story still kind of just returns to its roots. It is very different, but it's still the root of horror. There's one alien and there's all these people, and it's picking them off one by one. And then they're still dangerous. Yes, you've eliminated, you know, modern technology and all of these things. But they're still dangerous people, and they're all going one by one by one. And aside from the horrible CGI, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to look at. Oh, and I forgot Charles Dance died so young. Or so early <laughs> on, not so young, so early on. Oh, he was wonderful. I'd completely forgotten that he was in it, too. So it was a fantastic rewatch for me. It was like seeing it for the first time, almost. And you get that with music, I think, more over over time, but you don't get that same experience with movies in the same way. So it was it was a really, really great watch for me. And I, I think I was also bitter about the fact that they killed Michael Bean and Newt off at the beginning, too. I, there was just a lot I think I wasn't old enough to appreciate or really get over or get past. And for that, I was one of those people that talked a lot of smack about this movie. But it's it's really good. And now when I hear people say that it's one of their favorite in the franchise, and uh, I still think it's a little crazy to say it's your favorite, but I at least now can grasp that and understand why, and appreciate it, too. Uh, Kim, what about so yourself? That was a little tangenty, too. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> uh, Kim, what about yourself? Um... <laughs> I got so absorbed what you were saying. I forgot what I wanted to say. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a got... man girl too. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, Alien 3 was, you know, I mean, I think I watch Aliens pretty much every time I watch it, I watch the entire franchise. Like, I caught on with it pretty late in my life. So, it was, a lot of it was really, um, I mean, I think it was after I started the blog, which is within the last maybe 10, 10 years or so, that I had watched the franchise completely once. And at that time, I already had, you know, I was already a bit older at the time as well. And watching Alien 3, I actually, you know, I have this feeling that Alien 3 is kind of like, you know, it's not it's not a bad movie. I've never felt it was a bad movie. It's always like movies that kind of align with, you know, um, things like... My my general feelings for like movies like Pitch Black and stuff like that, and it's it just kind of has everything that I I like, and I think it really dials down to like when I started to watch it, I didn't realize it was a Fincher movie, but 
it was all those things about, you know, the atmosphere and just like the lighting and just like the location and how everything is set up that it's always been one that I've really enjoyed. But at the same time, you know, when you rewatch it a second time, there's always that why I like it a bit more every single time, I think is really there's all these little details and things that you kind of grasp. And um, yeah, so I mean, it's not my favorite alien movie, but I mean, I still think, you know, like, I don't mind rewatching it. I kind of mind rewatching Resurrection, which is a part of the franchise which kind of yeah. drops for me. But, <laughs> but, you know, like, up to Alien 3, I'm having a good time. Okay. I love, I mean, I'm a diehard fan for this whole saga. I love the Alien saga. The fact it's blue collar space, which is something I've always loved. It's not people in, like, silver jumpsuits yeah. and ill-fitting cod pieces. This is people who are in space, and it's just another job. And the yes. fact it was established with the first film, they're, ba- they're space miners who stumble across this distress signal. And that's what I always loved about it. And certainly something that drew Fincher to the series as a whole. I mean, he openly admitted he loves Ridley Scott's films and certainly loved what James Cameron was doing. And he actually got a lot of advice from Ridley Scott, who paid a visit to the, the set because they were shooting over at uh, Pinewood. And um, Ridley Scott came in and... Fincher basically voiced his concerns because the studio gave Fincher nothing but grief on this this film. The production itself was just troubled from the beginning. I mean, we had production started back in 1987 when William Gibson, the godfather of cyberpunk, was basically was attached to the film, and we would have to wait until 1995's Johnny Mnemonic for him to make his big screen debut. And I don't know if anyone remembers that movie, but it's a there's a talking dolphin in it, and it's pretty ropey, even for a Keanu oh, Reeves movie. Gosh, I love it. It's so awesomely bad. I am not ashamed of loving that movie at all. <laughs> but it is is—it is so not for everyone. <laughs> so, the original concept that he brought to the table would have seen Ripley push to the background, and it would have focused more on Hicks and Bishop, and the story itself, I saw... The basically the company that the company the um, Hayu uh, Wiyande company that Ripley's basically spends the whole saga fighting against. They'd be battling against space communists, um, and the aliens would work into there. And we would also see human hybrids as the alien became less of a threat and more sort of like a disease spreading species. Uh, this sort of struggled and it was further scrapped and then we got to see Eric Red's script. Uh, Eric Red is responsible for the likes of The Hitcher and Near Dark and a year later he comes up with a concept which is set on a sort of space station slash farming colony which would have seen like farmers teaming up with marines to fight alien hybrids and in this vision basically anything the aliens touch turns into a hybrid so we have hybrid alien cows alien chickens even oh the space God. station turns into an alien at one point it's really crazy <laughs> stuff um there is a graphic novel of this the uh, which i believe it's uh, marked as like alien free the unproduced screenplay so if you want to check that out you can check it out but as we go along you see bits and pieces that were sort of brought into the final sort of screenplay here so here we're seeing like space colonies and we're seeing mutant variations of the alien and the one that i most wanted to see was the sort of third one which is vincent ward's wooden planet script which saw the whole film taking place on a wooden planet which is uh run by monks they basically they 
capture uh, Ripley's uh, skate pod and with it obviously comes the alien. Now the monks all believe that the alien's this devil and they're all being punished for this intrusion of a woman in their colony so there's great mistrust and the story itself added a real medieval slant to the story. So you had futuristic elements and you had medieval elements because these monks are living a very medieval sort of existence. They're farming the land, they got the um, iron ores uh, so basically they've got forges and there's no weapons and we see basically this is really lays the foundation for the alien free we get with the monks being replaced for um with a penal colony and the fact that nobody has any weapons and everything's all very much basic um the script itself is really worth checking out uh there's some really great scenes such as a scene taking place in the monks lavatory where they're all sort of sitting around on these um I don't know if you've ever seen medieval toilets, but it's basically like a box with a hole and you've got these monks that are sitting along and they're basically being pulled through the toilet by this alien that's going along and, and like taking them down one by one. Um, the, film oh. also <laughs> <laughs> the film also gave Ripley her first uh, death sequence, which Sigourney Reaver really was happy with because uh, she was pretty much tired of making these movies at this point. And in the original script, she basically walks out into the cornfields of fire uh, which have been set ablaze to sort of kill the alien, which we kind of see with the finale we get here. So when we finally get into Fincher's production, the screenplay only starts getting rewritten four weeks before production is set to begin. They bring Fincher in because, you know, he's a young and experienced director. He's made some cool adverts. He's made some cool music videos. The studio think that they can control him. And basically this starts a long line of the the studio basically trying to screw Fincher at every turn. First of all, they give him less budget than they gave for the first two movies. Then they cut the schedule by a month. The original movies had about eight months to film. Alien 3 had seven. And he's just constantly working at every turn. But at the same time, he's winning over the crew. He's winning over the cast. Charles Dance said, uh, Dance himself says that he was so caught up with Finch's enthusiasm and his vision that he was happy to jump off the Tower Bridge for this director. And... Uh, <laughs> We also see a lot of uh, bit actors who turn up as convicts who will later turn up in uh, later films as well. So it's a really positive vibe on set, even though everything is sort of stacked against him. Everyone's there trying to work with Fincher and trying to make the best of the situation. As we mentioned already, this is a the first script with no weapons. This is a part of a demand by Sigourney Weaver. She had originally requested this for Aliens, but uh, James Cameron, being a more forceful director, had stood his ground, <laughs> took her down to the range and let her fire off a machine gun, and she was like, oh, this is fun. Let's go and put this in the film. And uh, hence Movie Magic was born. But uh, by Alien 3, the request had turned to demands, and hence were given Alien 3 with no weapons. So... As a concept there, and a bit of a long-winded history, so I apologise for the first of tonight's rants. <laughs> How do we find alien and uh, this world without where we're facing aliens without weapons? First off, how does this sort of does this add or take anything away? Because I remember growing up with this movie as a kid, and everyone hated it. It was like, oh, it sucks. There's no guns. There's no weapons. It's just no, a bunch of prisoners what... with fire axes. Yeah. I feel like that's what heightens the the tension and it does, it makes it certainly a much more psychological fear. But I mean, that's, that's kind of, if you add more weapons at this point, it's going to desensitize the fear and the, uh, the terror that they're under. 
you had all the guns. You had all of the guns. You had the Space Marines, the most badasses in the second one, and guns did nothing. So we come back to this even without that. How are you going to kill this? You only have one. It's it's different, but it's absolutely scary. It it's it's tense, like nails in your hands, tense going holy crap, you can feel it. It's palpable. It's crazy. Yeah, and I mean, like, the the whole idea of it is is not is obviously the contrast to the, the second movie and really dialing it down, but you're in this area with all these all these people who, you know, have pretty, like, uh, violent pasts, I guess. And it would be, like, it kind of gives them, you know, you think that at this point is where they're kind of using their own schemes and their own wits to kind of like outsmart this new species of the aliens, because if it also kind of gives it this, uh, you know, like, I don't know, it gives it a new edge to, to kind of play around with, because, you know, like not only is, is Ripley part of this, but Ripley knows that weapons will do nothing. Yep. And that's and that's the thing too. You kind of get it from her perspective. You're coming in. They don't know, but you know that that's pr- a problem. And they're like, eh, and you're like, no, you're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> it's it makes it fun and terrifying. And it's also a really claustrophobic atmosphere that we once again managed to capture here. And it's kind of interesting the fact that in each of these three films that we managed to still maintain a claustrophobic atmosphere like the first one we're obviously on board a ship second one we're confined to a colony um and this third one we are basically on this penal colony uh fiona fury one five six one it's a barren planet the surface temperature ranges between 40 degrees c in the daylight a chilly 20 minus 20 at night and the air is sort of breathable but we see there's like howling winds that ravage the flat terrain and most of the planet is plunged into darkness for most of the time and it's basically, you know, the sort of place you leave things to when you want them to be forgotten, which is basically what these prisoners have been left here. They were originally set here as a penal colony, and when they shut down the facility, they decide to stay with just a skeleton crew to sort of keep an eye on them. Because they know that they have no purpose in society. They're never, even if they return to society, they have no... No one is going to accept them because of their previous crimes. So they're quite happy to live out in the fringes of the universe, creating this like apocalyptic religion for themselves, uh, which is kind of like a firebrand Christianity. And at the same time, they're working off this sort of honor system where they're sort of kept in check by themselves. The guards are just there basically to ensure that the play. The lights are kept on, the supplies are running, and to basically handle any sort of minor things which happen. But for the most part, the we're dealing with a group of prisoners who are led by Dylan, here played by Charles S. Dutton, um, a former vet criminal himself turned uh, actor, who I don't think has ever been better. I keep waiting for him to top this performance, but it never seems to happen. He just seems to do supporting roles here, there and there on TV mainly. So, In terms of obviously our, our new group of characters here, I mean, what do we think of the, the penal colony and its colourful inhabitants? Well, at first it kind of... It, it, I The first time I was still dealing with the I hate anyone who isn't, you know, Newt or Bishop <laughs> or or everything. I, I was bitter about it, so I kind of hated everyone at first. And 
by the end, I remember that I liked a bunch. And then watching it again, now you can kind of appreciate. It. And I, I love bad guys anyway. Bad guys are just written better. They're more interesting. They're more colorful. And we get an entire cast full of bad dudes that you like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, they're bad guys, but I like him. I don't want him to die. Oh, and then you kind of start to see how their own uh, flaws are going to trip them up as they go along, too. There's there's little bits of foreshadowing here and there, which, as you know, upon multiple viewings, you see more and more. So it, it was fun. And Charles Dance, don't mention I love Charles Dance. <laughs> he could read he could read like a well I don't know there's a lot of actors reading a lot of things I wouldn't have expected them to read right now so you could put him on a list to read anything and I would I would listen as Dolesville Encyclopedia Britannica there you go <laughs> I, <up>. agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree I agree <laughs> like Charles Dance is one of I think my favorite characters of um of Alien 3 and he's kind of like, you know, he kind of has a story. He's a little bit more story than everybody else there. So it, he's kind of also easier to remember because he kind of connects with Ripley as well. And you have this whole story going on uh, with, this, you know, this kind of side story before he, like, you know, <laughs> doesn't make it <laughs> between uh, <laughs> between uh, Clemens and Ripley. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, the, the whole... I guess you can call them all anti-protagonists in certain ways, um, where these are all just a bunch of, like, really bad guys. And they, and and there's just, you know, I think the first time I watched it, what, one of the main things is it's easy to confuse some of the characters, I think. And then as yeah. a, as, yeah, and as it goes along, I think this time, like, I kind of managed to grasp a few of them for, you know, their li- their different little traits and their little things that they do. And it kind of defines them a little as, especially during, you know, the phase in, in, in this whole, the, the whole tunnel and shutting doors and all that as they're running around. Um, it really adds a lot to, you know, just um, these characters and, and the progress of things happening and, you know, just kind of gives them a little bit more space to, to, I just, I don't know, just to develop, I guess. It's funny, you, you both seem to be fixated on, uh, on one, on the, uh, on the Doctor, and he's, I love the fact he's introduced, and you think that he's just a member of staff, but you find out he's actually one of the convicts, um, mm-hmm. which I think is such an interesting reveal, and the fact that he's confined himself to this, this life and this desolate planet. In one way, it's sort of an atonement for his previous sins, the fact that he's this, you know, this um, rising star doctor who pulls in a, a stupidly long shift. I think it's like a 72-hour shift. Celebrates it by going out drunk, only to get called back in to deal with a gasoline fire and ends up killing a bunch of patients because he's too trash to know how much painkillers he's prescribing people. And as such, he gets his medical license docked down, so... His only real career choice is to be here at the prison, but at the same time, do you get the sort of feeling that he's he's sort of like paying penance for his previous sins, like many of these other prisoners, or do you think it's just the fact that his circumstances have basically landed him here? I, I felt like he was. That's why he connected with Ripley, though it was circumstantial how he got there. It wasn't just a he chose a life as a criminal or a bad person. He had some things that 
yes, were in his power, but probably felt like they were out of his power. And that's why he was where he was. But I think I think that was part of the connection between the two of them, too, which their chemistry was fantastic. You you connected. They connected immediately. The fact he gets killed off, it just sort of continues that, that pattern we see. Because in Aliens, we obviously have the surrogate family forming with, you know, Hicks being the potential husband, Newt replacing the daughter that Ripley's essentially lost in the years she spent in the drifting in the uh, hyperspace. And then it's all snatched away from her at the start of the film. And we see her essentially clawing it back, having a new potential love interest, and then that's taken away from her again because, you know, these xenomorphs show the same sort of dedication to hunting Ripley down that the sharks do to the Brody family, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and if we're going to talk about characters too, we we definitely have to talk about Ripley's evolution this time. I mean, you touched on it earlier too when you were talking about Blue Collar in Space, that, I think, is why I connected to Ripley so much when I was young. She wasn't a superhero with superpowers or this or that. She was just a normal, everyday woman thrown to extraordinary circumstances, and she just kind of overcame things. And that was why I always looked up to her, not because... I mean, partly because she could really handle herself with a gun, admittedly so. She's a badass. But, but it was her character that... I loved and still do, but she's a survivor. She was going to get through whatever, no matter what happened. She was brokenhearted uh, at the beginning of Aliens of losing her daughter. She went back for the damn cat in Alien, which, my God, I would do too, and then I would die. (laughs) I'm the idiot who's going to run into the burning house for my cat and catch on fire and die. But, (laughs) But in this... She does again. You you think that she's going to be lost with those two gone. Everything she went through is for nothing. But she doesn't. She keeps going. She evolves. And like you said, she's interested. And, and who can blame her? It's been a long time since she's gotten any. But, <laughs> but I mean, there's not a lot of time between point A and point B for her to, to make those, those changes in her own psyche. But... She's in survival mode and she's ready to move on and do what she has to do to go to wherever that next place is. She just doesn't know that, like you said, the Xenos haven't quite given up on her. Yeah, but I mean, like, like you know, you, you can't really blame her, right? Like, if you think about the time lapse, like, I think the thing that we forget because of the movie magic that we have is is that, you know, Ripley from the start, from Alien to Aliens to, to Aliens, is for 57 years that she's been adrift and then this time it was like what 200 years or something right yes it's it's been a long time you know she needs a good romp (laughs) you know if if anything's taught you to take the grasp a moment it's when you've slept through like more than you've lived (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah yeah, I agree. I mean, there's a question I really want to pose to you, uh, both you, both yourselves. And when you obviously saw like Alien for the first time, did it resonate on, with if you the fact that here for like essentially the first time we had a female heroine taking center stage? It wasn't the man coming to yeah. save her. She was first of all, she's the most level-headed person on the on the ship in the first film, who basically says, "No, we're not going to bring him on board." And because he gets overruled by a man, that old shit breaks loose, and we end up with like seven plus films of nonsense that follows. Um, <laughs> great nonsense, but nonsense nonetheless. 
so but it was only like years later and it was when i was like doing media studies it was pointed out to me the fact that she was like the first female home and i never sort of dawned on me the fact that yes she is like here she is she doesn't need yeah. anyone to be saved she's not there to be be rescued she rescues herself and often other people in the situations we obviously especially see in like aliens we see it again in this film that she's constantly the one playing the rescuer uh put her in that very unique class of you know of like buffy she's the girl yes. the pretty girl who chases the monsters rather than the monster chasing her so yeah i mean like when you you know like i was just thinking about it right now like while we were talking about you know ripley whether she like because i mean I'm, I'm a little like i have a lot of gaps in my 80s movie viewings and stuff like that so i was thinking like in that time frame whether she was one of the first or even the first um you know badass chick to come out like a badass heroine to to, to come to like a movie screen because at that point we've had a lot of like you know male kind of uh especially in the 80s the... yeah exactly look so... at carl weathers and arnold schwarzenegger's arms that says it all <laughs> <laughs> i would i would say for western cinema certainly she was i would say she was the the first i mean there were obviously other examples before then we can look at like pam greer cleopatra jones who obviously yeah. black exploitation but mm -hmm. again that's not really mainstream cinema that's exploitation cinema uh we can look over to the east we see the likes of michelle yo um yeah. and the ladies and like uh chang Peng pei of uh like the god and swallow herself just kicking so much ass in in hong kong cinema and for Western cinema and mainstream cinema, it just wasn't seen it as you said already, Heather. I mean, the eighties were all about guys with big muscles and bigger guns, which paved the way for the lighter guys who did a lot of high kicking and the ladies, <laughs> I mean, unless she was Cynthia Rockart and again she's over working more in the East, um, there wasn't really anyone who sort of stood out and then out of nowhere Zagoni Weaver sort of like is this sort of heroine we've all been waiting for. Well, and the thing I found interesting that I didn't know until I was much older, too, is that Ripley was written for a man. Yeah. Initially, that character was supposed to be a man. And I I prefer, I love androgyny in any form, but particularly when you're writing characters in this kind of thing, uh, it didn't have to be a woman or a man. And that hadn't really been something that occurred to people all the time. There were certain role types for women to be in in these kinds of movies. And and this was the first one I was I was so young. This was the first one I saw. So this is what set the tone for me with women. I couldn't stand women being damsels in distress in movies. The the next movie I saw that was in kind to this at all was Terminator. And you even saw Sarah Connor evolve there too. She started off as just your everyday girl who's like, oh, oops, I didn't know that my womb was so important. Silly me. And then realized she had to, you know, be a badass and stepped up and just did what she thought she had to do. But there there weren't a lot of those choices. But it was never shoved down your throat either. It was just, well, she happens to be a woman. So that's that's the way this, this story's going. She's fine. Look, she can hold up the big gun. Look, she kills all the things. It's great. But you got that. You got that in Aliens. Also, you got Vasquez, who was the biggest badass out of all of them. Ah, yes. Oh, the human chameleon herself. <laughs> Jeanette Goldstein I love the fact with Jeanette Goldstein she constantly turns up in movies and you she's just never she can adapt to any role I mean she turns up in Near Dark and she's like you know the nomad vampire she turns up in Fear and Love in Las Vegas and she's like oh, the yeah. maid and it's like oh my god it's Jeanette Goldstein um, also she's in Les, 
let's not forget in Aliens, we also have Colette Hiller as Pharaoh, my favorite character of all time, yeah. and the one I would save. Spunk <laughs> <laughs> Meyer. What the? <laughs> Every time. <laughs> she's like, when it comes to like people I would love to like sit down and interview, she's like the great white whale of like interview subjects myself. She's fantastic. And it was her only real role. She only did a couple of bits and pieces here, there, and then she turned up doing some project called Sing London, and um, that was it. I think I've seen her in one convention um, that she was listed to appear at, and I've, as I said, it's uh, she remains this elusive interview subject for myself. So, <laughs> But obviously back to Alien 3, this is again a really stacked cast, we've got some really fantastic people uh, most of all we've got Brian Glover who may not mean oh, yeah. a lot to yourself but means a hell of a lot to myself, uh, Brian Glover being the prof- former professional wrestler teacher and one time Shakespearean actor as he appears in Midnight Summer's Dream, the only version that you would really care about in school and why? Because he's the warden in Alien 3 and he's a Yorkshire <laughs> man I just love the fact, I mean, to, to quote himself, you play to your strengths in this game, and my strength is a bald-headed, rough-looking Yorkshireman. And that's what he brings to Alien 3. And I think he's... If anyone is going to go up against Clements, it's Brian Glover is the perfect counter to him. He's the warden. He doesn't want a woman causing ripples in the pool. He just wants to keep everything on order and basically wants Ripley off his uh, off his planet as quick as possible and i just love the fact he's like constantly denying anything that's happening he's fighting everyone on every opportunity because he just wants everything to remain normal and i think he's just this outstanding character not only in this film but just the whole saga he's this wonderful uh presence in the film so he does and and he's strong and and that's that is definitely what you can say about him there is a presence there and, and you do need a countermeasure, too. You need someone, as you said, who's going to be strong enough against Dylan, but also Ripley. And if there's this entire prison full of these horrid killers and villains, we don't know what they've all done, that have been dumped here to send out their time, then you have to have one tough mother effort to keep those guys in line and run the ship. And he knows that that's what he has to keep doing. And he's a hard, hard dude. And he he sold me. And I think he's very sort of underplayed in just how much he establishes what this this penal colony is. Because on the surface you think, oh, they're just a bunch of harmless convicts. You know, they discover religion. And he's like, no, we're a group of... of we're all male colony. We're full of rapists, thieves, murderers. And just because they've discovered religion doesn't mean they're any less dangerous. And I just love the fact that he know to know to maintain the order of the peace. He's there as the authority figure, but at the same time, he basically lets um, Dylan run the convicts because he's basically their spiritual leader. He's the would be sort of like the the head priest of this group. We were still talking about the monks or the abbot, should I say? And I just I uh, just love the whole sort of setup. It was just fascinating right from the first time I saw this film just how this film was sort of set up it wasn't like normal sort of prison movies where you have like the warden who's like ruling with his iron fist and beating everyone down he just knows when he's going to step in he knows what he has to do to maintain the order and basically lets things 
run to a certain extent and backed up by his idiot psychic. So, was... <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, he paid for that. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, and also in the past, if you like British actors, you've got a hell of a lot of them here. We've got Paul McGann, we've got Danny Webb, we've got Holt McAnley, we've got Pete Postlethwaite, another human chameleon right there, who a lot of people really play up his presence here, and for myself, he was just an interesting supporting character. He wasn't super important to the film. He has a couple of interesting lines, but he's not as important as people like to make out just because he's Pete Postlethwaite. So. Well, I mean, that is a good reason. <laughs> You sounded like Jay. Jay loves Pete Postlewaite. Like when we were uh, talking about uh, Lost World, and he got so excited when, whenever he's on the screen. He's wonderful in that. Though. Well, that's how he is. It doesn't matter how small his role is. He's No matter what he shows up and does, he's he's fantastic. I get excited, too. Yeah, he's good. We're nerds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I mean, I was really it was really nice to see, because um, I, I always feel like... Um, uh, Holt McCallany. He seems like he's very like, because I really just noticed him on my radar. Because um, I, you know, confession time. I haven't seen Fight Club, so you guys were talking about it and didn't say anything. Oh. <laughs> and it's like, so I only recognize him from Mindhunter. And now after that, I keep seeing him pop up in like random movies. And then oh. I'm just like, wow. It's, <laughs> it's a GTA stuff. Four effect. You see one car, and then all of a sudden that car's everywhere. Yeah, he's him and his jaw has been in everything. <laughs> he's wonderful though I love him oh Mindhunter he's so good yeah I've yet to watch Mindhunter I've got Mindhunter and I've got House of Cards to watch so um, House of Cards is going to be tricky I mean it's Kevin Spacey and I think people are now getting to the point where much like Polanski they're separating the man from the art mainly because they don't want to like you know, ignore films like Seven. They don't want to look ignore things like House of Cards. They, there's so many performances he's given that um, they're just they're just separating what he does in his off-screen time from uh, the man himself. The other example of that being Chris Benoit, the wrestler. A lot of people separate the wrestler and um, the real-life man who uh, obviously had that mental break, which led to such a tragic incident, which still overshadows the wrestling industry now. So. It's it's a hard thing to do. I I I always loved Kevin Spacey. He's always been one of my favorite actors. So it's really hard for me to sit there and hate him is fine, but give up all of his films. No, I can't. I can't not watch Seven. That's not going to happen. Um, one last thing I'm just going to say about Brian Glover. I just have to thank him for bringing the Yorkshire accent to sci-fi, and we had to wait till Snowpiercer for Tilda Swindon to bring it back. So, oh yes, she's so wonderful. Hopefully, <laughs> more Yorkshire accents in in blue collar sci fi ahead of us. That's all I want. <laughs> Not specific at all. <laughs> <laughs> like sub genre of sub genre of sub genre, but we want what we want. Damn yeah. it. <laughs> okay, so looking at the xenomorph this time, we're no longer dealing with the humanoid xenomorph. We're dealing with the dog xenomorph, <laughs> uh, which. I know I'm. I like the model. I like how it looks, and I like how it uh, moves. I thought it was a real sort of game changer. It brought something new to the film, rather than just rehashing what we've seen before. Um, the original script, and if you watch the assembly cut, it comes out of an oxen, which uh, the prisoners are using to basically do all the heavy lifting on on this planet. And uh, in the assembly cut, the facehugger comes out of the pod and it attaches on the oxen, and the oxen's pulling the 
escape pod out. It collapses. The inmates take it to the abattoir and we see it sort of shaking on the chains and then the alien bursts out. And then in the cut we have, it uh, instead was chains to the dog. So we have the wonderful dog burster sequence. So um, thoughts on this Xenomorph? I mean, do we like the dog version or... I don't mind the version, but I'm just—I don't think I'm very objective about it. This, it's so horrible. It's—it ruin—it doesn't ruin the movie for me anymore. But it's—it's it's distractingly bad. I don't mind the it conceptually, but the yeah. CGI is—is is, it's so bad. It really is, and it's distractingly so. But there are a few good shots of it where it's—it's it's some more of the practical, but it's. Ugh, looks terrible. It looks. It just looks fake. I hate it. I hate everything about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> hate <Yep>. it. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think of I think of this more as like con- conceptual. So I really do think that it's t- it was time for a change. As in, like you know, by the third movie, as as you know, kind of like a movie formula as you go through a franchise. You kind of want some change, or else it would be too similar to the previous two movies, and then you'd. Like and then tremors. it would just make it even more like a comparison, right? Yeah, definitely. I agree with uh, what you're saying, Shannon, out there, Heather, that uh, it is like Tremors. Tremors managed to evolve the graboids through each movie. So, you know, they became, they started off as graboids, the giant worms, and they became like the little chicken things, and then they became <laughs> ass blasters. And yes. I've, I haven't seen before, so God knows what they turned to then. I don't know, like... Don't watch four. Skip over four. The first three are fantastic. This is what six now or something? I mean, they've yeah, yeah. I think they're they're Netflix ones. I still haven't seen the most recent ones. I've seen that uh, the six ones in a snow place, which is it seems to be the new thing because before with your franchise, if you ran out of ideas, you either went to Hawaii or you went to space, and now everyone seems to be heading to snow places. So hopefully, clearly, they haven't lived in snow places. Nobody <laughs> wants to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Kim, obviously you're up in the Great White North. Have you any sort of fondness for seeing more snow places in horror? I mean, you know, we live in like what six six months of winter, right? I think I think Heather is about the same. Um, Where are you? I'm in Montreal. <laughs> oh, you're you're further north. Yes, yeah. much more so. But yes, I'm in Michigan, so it's we get five six months of winter here. It's pretty standard. Yeah. Like right now, it's still. It still could snow any day. People will sit here and go, "Oh, you know yeah, what? You're, it's you're expecting, be you know, the, you know, you're expecting the April last snowstorm to hit." Yeah, so, you yeah, know, pretty yeah, much. We're so, used to it, though. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we get a light dusting on the ground, and everything grinds to a halt because we don't deal with snow. <laughs> <laughs> Driving rain and fog, we can deal with no problem at all. But a light dusting of snow is just not what we do. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally like the like the evolution of the creature. I mean, I even like the humanoid uh, evolution that we see in Alien Resurrection. I think it was great, the fact that the series was able to constantly keep moving and giving us something new rather than uh, just doing the same thing over and over again, which it so could easily have done. I mean, certainly the setup is there to have a humanoid alien running around the place. Um, and I just like the fact it was... Uh, it's, it's faster, it can run up and down walls, It uh, we get the the POV vision, which is really cool as well for it. Yeah. Which really comes into effect when we have, like, the, the whole sequence. Um, something that was teased 
in the trailer and i've never been able to find the footage since it was originally shown um we have the scene in the infirmary where the alien does the the almost like a love bite move against on her neck and there was a teaser trailer for it where you see it by open the side open its uh mandible so it was the the lock jaw we call it so basically the mouth that came out and in the teaser they had that mouth come out and then it opened its mouth and then a smaller mouth came out so mm. and it came up with the tagline three times the terror and i thought well that's going to be in the film and of course it wasn't it was just footage created to get us all to hand over our hard-earned bucks to go and see this movie um the i don't cri- know maybe it wasn't maybe it was in the other edition because my my thing because for for this i watched the theatrical release and then somehow i have a feeling i did see that in the other edition that was on the box set that i have but i don't remember right now I, mm. i'd have to rewatch it it's been a while so it's kind of sexy <laughs> <laughs> i i felt like it was kind of i mean it was i in in the sense of it it felt very carnal but Ripley's kind of much more of a... I think they make her more animalistic in this, too. Mm-hmm. She's acting her ass off. For someone who could just phoned in her performance, yeah. she just acts her ass off. And it's, when you have sequences like that, where you're essentially dealing with, especially in this film, a creature which is going to be mainly CGI, you really get the sort of sense of presence that she has brings to the film that she's constantly the way she interacts with it even with the more cgi moments you always get the feeling that the creature is there when she's obviously doing the interactions compared to with some of the other actors so and and in fairness to the cgi this is this is 92 like this year was the first year i think terminator judgment day came out uh jurassic park so you had some of the best practical mixing with with CGI at the time that anybody had ever seen. But prior to, to Spielberg and Cameron doing that, it wasn't something that was used often at all, and certainly not well. So it was experimental on that, too. I don't think it worked successfully, but I appreciate the effort and the idea, which also gives Sigourney even more amazing credit with her performance. Yeah. Uh, the Simpsons also did a really great parody of that uh, infirmary sequence when they're doing their play on cinema Paradiso, so they're doing like love scenes from movies in this one big edit, and they show Alien Free. And instead of doing the love bite sequence, it kisses Ripley on the neck instead, and she smiles, which I thought was kind of enduring. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, okay, let's get into the real meat and potatoes of this gore. How do we find the gore in this? Because I think this film has got some of the best gore of the series, including a man falling into a fan, um, a really questionable capture plan, which sees the inmates using themselves as bait, and just some really fantastic, some really fantastic sort of gore here. We see throats slit open. We see people spray with blood. It really sort of goes all out where the other films were more sort of focused on keeping it in the shadows in the states of the first film or the second one it was just basically aliens been blown apart every five seconds so but um how do we find the gore in this one did it sort of work within this sort of framework or do you think it was sort of like venture sort of grasping straws to give the audience something of this uh doom production no i think it uh i think it played exactly to what i got as the whole utter feel of it anyway it was the return to horror there and and it wasn't just gratuitous either it was built up and because this is still a fincher movie that tension and 
that anticipation because we also already know that it's going to happen. You kind of have to use a little bit of creativity and shock to make those payoffs enjoyable. And I found them enjoyable. It, it, and it felt necessary. It, it was part of the storytelling and it was part of exactly what the genre was, which was horror. And you get gore and horror. Aliens was more of an action adventure sci-fi. Yeah. There was horror involved, but it was action adventure sci-fi. This movie was horror sci-fi. So it worked for me. Kim? I agree with everything she says. I have nothing to say. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm, 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 you know, I'm in the same, I'm in the same thing. Like I, I, you know, to me, I don't know, maybe it's because I've been watching a lot of horror lately. I don't know why. I mean, it's not really the time to be watching horror, but I am. And no, it is. It's the perfect time. Watch something darker than what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was know, I mean, running scared the other day because I needed something awful. <laughs> it was perfect. Well, it felt I, great for well, like an hour afterwards. I mean, I mean, I'm not the crazy person who's like watching. Maybe one of you are doing it. I'm not calling you crazy, but I mean, it's like, like Contagion is what is like ranked what top ten on Netflix right now. Oh, everyone's watching for, like, Contagion over four here. Four weeks in a row, you know. <laughs> now those I don't get. Is everyone literally trying to make themselves go crazy? <laughs> I mean, do we want to infuse our paranoia? I already have anxiety. I don't want to watch movies about outbreaks. Yeah, but it's, a, it's the same thing as like. I remember, like, it's just a tangent right now, but, I mean, like, um, my my friend watched Contagion. I had already seen it. And, I mean, he watched it, and then he, he came to me, and he was like, oh, my God, Contagion is, like, exactly what's happening right now. I was, yeah. I was like, I know. Why are you watching it? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yeah, anyways, I mean, my point was, um, you know, like, for, 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 you know, the gore and stuff like that, I feel like, I mean, maybe because, you know, if, if in comparison to, you know, the last season when we were going through Ang Lee, none of that happened. We had zero gore. But in comparison, like, I feel a little bit desensitized now. It's it's crazy because I remembered gore was one of those things that really, like, would disgust me so much when I first started watching horror movies. And now, you know, you're talking about the gore, and I'm I'm working really hard to think about where is their gore in this one? What the and, man being just, turned like, into just, a bloody mush by the fan wasn't didn't stand out at all. Yeah, but it wasn't. It wasn't like you know. It wasn't gratuitous, right? It was very. <laughs> it was like you know. You saw it in the shadows. It kind of like the you know the effects was you know like it just he just kind of broke apart. And it's not anything more serious than say you know like the first two. Obviously, the first two is is even like more off screen. But here it's like, you know, you see blood going down the drain or something like that. And and to me that's, you know, that's normal in a movie like this. It's not really, you know, like the guy the the xenomorph like pulls the person up and then that's it. There's there's not that much gore to, you know, that that I say is that much more different than before. It's still more about a movie which is, you know, like Heather says it's 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 more about the tension and that is more of, you know, Fincher's trademark is building tension, and this movie really does bring in that that psychological horror type of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think uh, the most disturbing sort of thing in terms of gore is just the autopsy of Newt. That's probably the most shocking oh, bit. You know oh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. That yeah, that yeah. I still have a, a hard time with. See, and I wasn't even thinking about that as gore. I was just thinking of that yeah. as that's disturbing. And it is emotionally so, and that's why Fincher did that, because he's David Fincher. He likes to mess with you. <laughs> oh, but that's why we love him. <laughs> it is. I love him so much. And... <laughs> I mean, with this film as well, he adapts to like a really unique shooting style. We don't actually see in his other films where he shoots everything at a low angle. So we're constantly seeing the ceiling and it's giving everything a real sort of sense of realism to it. And by having an autopsy carried out on this beloved character, it sort of only reinforces the fact that, you know, they are definitely gone. They are not coming back anytime. Same way that the cops aren't coming over the horizon at the end of The Wicker Man. You know, this is reality that we are living here, people. And while we're obviously not seeing a lot of the actual sort of gore, just the sound effects in that sequence alone are just excruciating. Um, as we're just constantly going deeper and deeper, and as she's like mm-hmm. sure that something's there, um, and it's almost in her mind that she knows that an a xenomorph is on this planet somewhere, and she's trying to figure out where in her mind somewhere. And obviously, ultimately, it's very close to home because it's inside her. Now, with the opening sort of sequence, I've had heard some criticisms that it sort of like takes away from the importance of what's happening. But I thought it was like a real great, you know, bring it up to speed, even if it does kind of wreck on the ending slightly of uh, Aliens. Well, no. I, I wouldn't say that. I, I think that, you know, like, this is, um, I think that was the part that really, like, the little detail of this viewing that really brought out the, the opening sequence, where it was really, like, the connection between the second and the third movie, kind of giving, you know, like, a bit of secret and kind of giving, like, um, an idea as to, you know, what's happened to the characters before and, you know, what what might have happened, you know, because obviously we, we see the, 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 the sequence of, you know, the face hugger and whatnot. And you see all the, the, the whole bio scan and all those things. And it kind of gives you that. It doesn't really reveal itself too much. It gives you just enough to kind of have kind of like a, a, a bit of closure to the second movie. And then you yeah. kind of get into the movie and, and they, and then it keeps going, you know, I feel like it's, it gives you a moment to kind of more now, at least I feel this way. I was just angry for a while. I feel like it gives you a moment to mourn the loss with her. And because you aren't given the ability to gloss over it with just the the vision, too, of a ship that's crashed or anything of that nature, you actually have to sit there and hear the noises and watch her do it. And it's awful that she has to go through that. But you, you, well, in this one, too, it also feels very voyeuristic. You feel like you, you're, you have Ripley's point of view more on this one. Because you have her perspective, you have her knowledge, you have her experience, and and that makes that part very, very, very difficult. But yes, I mean it's a little to the end, but eh. I was, I mean, just be watching this for the film and obviously knowing what sort of trademarks to look out for. I was very surprised as well to see that Fincher works in so many of his elements that would become trademarks of his films especially for a debut film and one so controlled by the studio i mean we obviously have the innovative title sequences we've got social outcasts here with the prisoners uh we got dark mm-hmm. urban settings and darkly lit rooms and we even get like the tints of blue which becomes so much more prominent and with a lot of the directors we've put in previous seasons it's normally the second film which we start seeing the trademarks come in uh, it, certainly with the, like, the case of like Paul W.S. Anderson uh, Guillermo del Toro and uh, perhaps to an extent Sofia Coppola who 
I think has the advantage of having obviously a, a father who's an established director, which and being a more independent production that she was doing with Virgin Suicide, so she had a lot more control really of uh, and was able to establish those trademarks early on. Just obviously bring it back to the the action sequences as well. We obviously have the two big action beats here. We have the flame. Uh, tunnel sequence which is right up there with like the thing from another world of just its use of fire and obviously the thing from another world had its gasoline throwing sequence with um and here we obviously have this huge fire tunnel sequence which i still think is fantastic to look at and then we have the tunnel running sequence as well which is a really questionable plan and I think if it hadn't been for the rousing speech given by Dylan I don't think any the audience perhaps would have went to bought it. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, I, I, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was, I was just about to say. Um, I mean, I mean, this is a speech that's also like added to by um, Elliot Goldenold's Ro- Rosinger score that sort of plays in the background and it rises as uh, he gets to the point of like you know you're going out one way or another and you can either like go out on your knees or you can, <laughs> or you can uh, basically tell it to go fuck itself. <laughs> <laughs> it's really in this moment we're really sort of seeing Dylan everything that Dylan sort of stands for he's bringing everything together he's using the beliefs of these prisoners and just saying that you know we're not going to everyone sort of thinks we're worth nothing but shit and our lives are nothing but expendable but we're going to make this final stand and we're going to go out on our own terms which I think is just what makes what I love about this film, I think it's such a ballsy ending. The fact that you've got these guys willing to do this suicide mission to to to, to capture the alien, and I mean in the assembly cut, the when they do the fire tunnel sequence, they originally capture the alien, and it's uh, the prisoner Golic who we see gets sprayed with blood and is in the infirmary going mad. Um, he forms this like in his mind, he forms this connection with the creature and refers to it as his brother. And, Kills another prisoner and releases it, and that leads us into the tunnel running sequence. So, oh. mm-hmm. um, but unfortunately, the uh, test audiences, which I'm guessing is just a bunch of sixteen or seventeen year old California surfer kids, didn't really care about Golic's character, so they cut it all out. So uh, now he's just the uh, the crazy guy. But he had much more. If you watch the assembly cut, he's got much more of a sort of presence. He's kind of like this smelly idiot prisoner who the other prisoners don't want anything to do with and you know it's um he, they're basically constantly being forced to work with um and he has much more of a sort of presence there of of having this weird bond with the creature because he we have that whole baptism of blood sequence and it's sort of like supposed to significantly initial bond between what he's seen and in his mind he's trying to make sense of it but you know it was all cut out and uh the assembly cut has got some really interesting moments like that. So if you have got the uh, quadology, which I recommend you all go and pick up if you're on DVD or Blu-ray, it's really cheap to get hold of now. Um, the assembly cuts for all the films are really, really great, but the one for Alien 3 in particular is really good. So I haven't seen it, so I that's something that I'm definitely going mm. to partake in. Well, like I said, it's only in the, the last few years where I, I finally sat down and watched it again and began to appreciate it for what it was so i'd be very curious to to see that version especially after everything you've told me now none of it will be a surprise (laughs) (laughs) well i'm sorry (laughs) it's okay i'll forget by then i I forget more than i remember now (laughs) obviously we're a big finale uh we get the return of the the pro what the model which bishop was based on 
because the company thinks that sending a friendly face is going to help uh, swing the cause in 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 their favor. I I thought it was kind of weird you send the creator bishop. Um, it was just a very unusual plan. Although it is always nice to see Lance Hendrickson, you know, Anything. doing his thing, mm-hmm. doing something other than alimony movies, as he likes to call them, his uh, lesser pictures. But the ending, I mean. Obviously, we've got the company like finally decide to show up now where all the work's been done, and we basically build up to this big sort of sacrifice sequence. I mean, you know, this is the end of a a very significant and iconic character, and it's obviously what Sigourney Weaver was. Uh, as we mentioned already, she was all for the end, having this character be killed off. And how did uh, we we find it? Because I know there's there's various takes on it. The fact that by having Ripley kill herself. Um, as the alien burst off, it's less of a saviour move and more of a janitorial move um, of making sure everything's sort of cleaned up. But, I mean, how did uh, you guys find it? I, uh, this movie devastated me as a child. It killed all of my heroes. And then there was a horrific movie. I didn't mind the gore when I was a child either because I was used to it at that point. But then my heroine jumps into molten lava at the end. So I was absolutely <laughs> devastated. I walked out of the theater in tears. My parents, you know, this is the movie before this that they made me watch to scare me, and this is the one that, that ruined my life. But uh, it was it was horrible for me the first time. <laughs> it was awful. I mean, I, I think I, like, cried for the whole afternoon, and I never cried. I was <laughs> upset. <laughs> uh, now, though, there's, there's a certain symmetry to it. Okay, first, we do know that she wanted out of the, the franchise, and... And she thought the character should die. Okay, I I accept that. It's unfortunate that the story had to arc to that and build its way to go there without having other routes. But now I see it. There's a there's a sense of symmetry to it. And and even at the end too, it's still her giving the big middle finger to the company, and she's still going out and out on her terms, even if it's janitorial. It. There's there is a, a certain circular choice of of her saying nope I'm done this time I I'm okay with it and then we do get resurrection afterwards but that's a whole another fun mess <laughs> but it I think it I think it works there's there's a, at least when you leave this one you feel closure you feel like the series is over hence all the crying. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose she would be grateful she didn't just give the thumbs up like a, we saw in Terminator 2, which ending's <laughs> worryingly similar to. And that came out the same year. Did it? <laughs> yeah, I think it wow. was 92. I think they were both 92. <laughs> uh, I think if only Cameron could get away with a move like that. But yeah. I, remember, I remember the end of Terminator 2 devastating me as well. And... Uh. I mean, this again, we look at Terminator, we've got Arnold Schwarzenegger is the unstoppable killing machine, and then Terminator 2, he's the protector, and somehow Cameron makes us care for the bloody machine. Um, that was my summer movie. I used to watch Terminator 2 all the time when I used to stay with my gran, and she's a big horror fan. We used to watch horror films together, and this was like, you know, it was healthy because it's, you know, family time, and, you know. But, uh, yeah, she really liked that. She also likes to see Arnold Schwarzenegger teleports in at the beginning. Oh, so cool. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Kim, um, I mean, how do you? What do you think of the ending? I mean, 
obviously coming this is one I with this sort of like uh this character, I mean, did you sort of have this big connection with Ripley so that it was more sort of devastating or did you feel like it was the right sort of closure for this 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 supposed trilogy at the time? I think it's the right type of closure. I think that, you know, if Resurrection didn't happen, like, it would have been this really good kind of, like, three-movie trilogy ended it. Um, it wrapped up kind of like there was... I don't really see another option for how Ripley in the state of things that had, you know, how the things had evolved and the, and the company coming in and, and how she would have escaped this, you know, without them, you know, using her as kind of like the incubator for, for this. And there, there just didn't, it seemed like the, the fitting ending for her to just kind of go. And I like the fact as well that we finally get sort of like the big game plan revealed of what the Wayland Yutundi Corporation have basically been able to do. The fact that they stumble across this bioweapon in the first film and then they send in the Marines and this is and the Marines are essentially just another test so that they can see the effectiveness of this this creature. And then it's like the convicts and as, and as she points out, it's all like, Do you think they're really gonna care about a bunch of convicts who found God at the edge of space? And I love the fact you just perfectly laid out this whole scheme that the corporation have been doing. Because we know they've been like the big bads the whole way through. We've seen their sort of like puppets that have played their role in trying to get their hands on a xenomorph as we saw like in Aliens with like Burke trying to uh, get Ripley and Newt uh, impregnated with the facehugger. Um, And then again with this one they think that you know they've got the chance of getting hold of a queen alien, uh, which makes it all the sort of more important. And I have to wonder, like, would you think that they would have held good on their offer of, like, basically removing it from her and giving her back her life? Because no. she seems to give the indication that, no, she's just going to be carved open and they're going to take what they want and that's going to be the end of it. That's exactly what they would have done. Yeah. They, they showed over and over again and again that that's exactly who they were. And then it was followed up in subsequent film that that is exactly what happened. But, yeah, I wouldn't have trusted them either. I think she made the right call. Yeah. Um, and then we're obviously just less with Morse, the one prisoner who is probably the most surprising person. Uh, in many ways, in, I'm not sure if he's, he's a surprising one because he's kind of like a, a weasel little git at times. He's he looks out for himself as we see throughout the the film, and certainly when you rewatch it and you see always like interactions, he's sort of like you know I'm looking out for myself. I don't really care about anyone else, but I'm happy to go along with many of the things that are happening because it keeps me as part of a group. Um, and again, on the quadology, you can find a copy of the book that his character writes, which is called Space Beast, which uh, the corporation uh, banned due to its sensitive nature. We're told, but uh, you can read his his little account that he wrote as uh, Space Beast. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, is there anything else that we want to talk about in this one? I just said, uh, for a lot of the people out there that hated this initially and thought it was absolute and utter garbage and the people that still scream that it is, I, if you haven't watched it in a long time, I would highly recommend watching it again and try and be as objective as possible. Because I, I still don't think it's it's near the first two, but it's it's a really, really good movie. It has some really cool parts, and it's scary, which I don't get scared anymore. And I've seen this movie, you know, probably six, seven times, 
And after a decade, I got more scared watching it than I ever had been before. So watch it again. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's what I would say. And if you haven't seen it, well, then you suck. Watch it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kim, how do you want to follow that up? <laughs> I have nothing to follow up. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay. Um, further viewing, if you like Alien 3, what would you recommend pairing it with? Is there any sort of films that your mind goes to when you think of, like, oh, I want to watch Alien 3 and put someone else with it to make a little double feature? Oh, yeah. Um, Pitch Black is a good one. It's uh, Ooh, or, good uh, or Or Riddick, too, because that's yeah. a fun space, uh, you know, um, prison movie, too. Um, either of those, uh, I, anytime I watch these kinds of movies and I hate it because they ended up making the crossovers, but I, I still want to watch Predator movies. I'm like, yep, yep, I've watched this time, time to go watch Predator. Actually, Predators is a really good movie. And that's another one that shouldn't have been good too, but really good. So yeah, that. Yeah. And then they made the Predator and undid all that good work. Oh my gosh. It's <laughs> so it's... ridiculous. It's so tonally weird, that film is. Yes. I've watched it once and I don't know what was supposed to be happening. And it's, I I think I fell asleep watching it and it's like, why did I fall asleep watching a Predator movie? I mean, the Predator's like second to this franchise and I love them both, how they've managed to work them together. Um, And just like, somehow these two laws have perfectly fused together to create this huge universe of like space jockeys and xenomorphs and warrior trials and just really great stuff. Yeah, but not that movie. No. (laughs) Christmas can save that for Shane Black. Nope. 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 Hmm. Kim, anything you want to pair with this one? Uh, well, she already mentioned uh, Pitch Black and Riddick, which was on my list. Um, but, I mean, whenever I think about Alien, I always think about Event Horizon. I don't know why. Maybe it's just a space element, and I no, really like fair. Event Horizon. Uh, yeah, so that's my that's my other movie that I would, that I, uh, you know, obviously massively love. And I shared that love when we were talking about it in season one, way back in season one of uh, Movies and Tea. Might have just been the genesis for this whole podcast experience. Just looking for an excuse to talk about Event Horizon and Mortal Kombat. Um, which, again, was probably the reason we did Paul Darius Anson back in that first season. So you can listen to us nerdly gush over those movies. Uh, but, you know, Event Horizon's really sort of come into its own the last year or so. Everyone's sort of reevaluating it. But I can definitely um, see a good pairing there. It's Blue Collar Space again. And uh, it's just a really effective horror movie. Um, for myself, I'm still on that sort of blue-collar horror sci-fi slant. I would say check out Dark Star, which is uh, John Carpenter's debut movie about a trio of uh, astronauts set um, out to destroy planet unstable planets. Uh, it's really funny, and it's really sort of set the template uh, for what Alien sort of carried and sort of ran with and also features probably the most unrealistic alien ever committed to film which is essentially a beach ball on legs um, the other one I would recommend pairing this with would be Think for Another World and you can also check out it's a big budget remake of John Carpenter's The Thing and uh, if you're doing The Thing just watch The Thing and The Thing remake back to back I don't I know there's people out there who don't like The Thing remake because 
they somehow think that it takes away from Carpenter's original, but it's just such a loving homage to Carpenter's um, original film and just the amount of nods and things that they work in. I mean, they even put in how the axe gets in where it's, it is. So I always try to watch uh, both films sort of back to back in this one epic but stupidly scary experience. Um, <laughs> I could, Carpenter's the thing. I still have in the shrink wrap since I bought that DVD because I know what's on that DVD. <laughs> I am not in a rush to watch it. <laughs> I want, I want it, but I don't want to watch it. <laughs> it's just, it just sits there like Reckon for a Dream, just having this strange power. Oh yeah, I feel you on that one. Oh, Reckon for Dreams like a once a year viewing, and then you don't want to even take like an aspirin after watching that yeah. movie. I've been threatening to make my husband watch that for like six years. Mm. Like, you ready for that movie? And he looks at me, he's like, you say this, but you never put it on. I'm like, yeah, I know, because I'm still not ready to watch it again. <laughs> it's like, You'll you be know... here one day with me. <laughs> you know that chick from Labyrinth you really like? You won't like her so much after this movie. Oh, no. No. Um, speaking of Aronofsky, I would love to see Aronofsky do an alien movie. That would be bizarre. He would bring... Um, I would... He... Again, I don't know what way he'd go. I mean, the same could be also said for Alex Garland. But after seeing what he did with Annihilation, I would hope for something a little more grounded, a little less interpretive dance ending. I'm okay with that. I, d- I didn't get the big fuss with Annihilation. I know there's there's people out there who I love and respect, like uh, you know Nick Rehack and the guys who were at French Toast Sunday, and I just did not get that movie, so more oh, the shame of me. It's it's not for everyone. I I'm absolutely enamored by it though. It's beautiful. It it lives in like the same land of of 2001 for me. It's just it's its own beautiful anomaly. I don't recommend it often, but I tell everyone to watch it anyway. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you very much for obviously coming on and uh, talking about Alien Free with us. Um, obviously. Where can people find you if they want to come and uh, check out your writings and other musings? Um, you know, I should be writing a lot more right now since we're all stuck at home. But um, you can find me on headertime.com. Head as in head on top of your body. Er as in er. Time.com. <laughs> and uh, I, I write about um, movies, music, games. I just kind of shoot the crap. I, I've been back to at least movies for the last year it's been a long time and i have to ask i mean do you think we're ever going to see the return of the milf cast because it's um, like the podcast i miss so much okay uh, i if i'm being really honest because jay gets mad at me all the time i'm like yeah kind of talking about getting the band back together yeah uh i don't i don't think we're going to I think we both want to, but we are both on totally opposite schedules and busy doing our own thing. And Kai's doing all of his artist stuff right now, too. And that's where his spare time when he's not working with his family is. And and I get that. And I have a little human now. And he takes up all my time and steals my face hugger. And it's... (laughs) It it I would I would be open to it. I actually messaged him a couple weeks ago and said we should we should do some shows. At least just do some quarantine shows. He's like, yeah, maybe not. So probably never again. And because <laughs> I said that, you'll probably hear a show in like a month. Watch. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Keep holding out. It's like one of those 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 shows that I just keep hoping would would come back. And now obviously having you on, I could ask you yourself because. 
it's as well, I said, it's just it's annoying when you have a, a show that you enjoy listening to and they just ends, <laughs> and often as things often do. So you know, and it and it's funny too because I think it I think this year would have been our eleventh year, or maybe it will be our twelfth year doing mm. it. The first time we stopped, it was in October, and we just took what was supposed to be a winter hiatus. And Soto was the last one on our show because he always does our Halloween episode. And then the same thing happened last year. <laughs> and he made a joke about it. He said, hey, so this isn't going to be like your last show, is it? We're like, no, nah, no, we're coming back just just after, uh, you know, the holidays and stuff. And then we didn't. So we're total jerks. <laughs> cool. Um, well, again, thank you for uh, coming on. And uh, hopefully we'll get you on again in the near future to talk about something else. And it's been a, just a real pleasure getting to to fanboy out over this saga. So thank you again, Heather. Thank you so much for having me on. And it was very nice meeting you, Kim. <laughs> I think we've actually done a show together before. I just can't remember what. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we obviously wrap this up, Kim, where are we going next? We're moving forward three years to 95 and looking at seven. Oh. A fantastic uh, stand-up movie in the film which finally put Fincher on the map after initially saying that he would rather get cancer than do another feature film. The three-year hiatus finally saw him return with a vengeance as he finally established himself as a director of note and given us a film that, much like The Murders, we're still puzzling over now. But more on that on our next episode. Um, if you want to obviously follow us and hang out with us, you can do on Facebook. We're also on Twitter and we are on Instagram as well. Uh, you can also check out our full archive of episodes over on the blog, which is moviesandteapodcast.wordpress.com. And on there as well, you can also find the other bits of writing, as well as the Friday Film Club, where every Friday myself and Kim put together a little double feature. I pick a film, she picks a film. Sometimes the theme, or sometimes they're not. But we get to talk about the films that perhaps we haven't got enough material to talk about on the show and uh, make sure they're covered. And also on there you can find all our After Hours episodes on there, including our Shark Week episodes as well. So plenty of good stuff there for you to check out. And uh, wherever you happen to be listening to us, please do hit the like and subscribe buttons and maybe leave us a review. It all helps raise the profile of the show. And we really appreciate you guys out there spreading the word and uh, hope you're enjoying this fifth season and what it holds ahead as much as we've enjoyed in the previous four so thank you as always and uh thank you to heather and thank you to my co-host kim and we will be back next time to talk about finches seven good night <laughs>